When is the last time you listened to a podcast about web development, web design, and small business and didn't fall asleep? Yes, we cover web development, web design, and small business, but like actual human beings with personalities. If you're a beginner, we're not going to talk over your head. It's more like asking your buddy for help. We have guests, we have fun, and let me tell you, these two can get off on a tangent. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to HTML All The Things Podcast. This is Matt Lawrence and Mike Curran. That's right, everybody. We are back, and this is episode 201. We've, we're have we on the road to episode what would you say 250 is a milestone or would you say 300 is a milestone mike 300 i'd say 300 okay we're on the road to 300 so we're well on our way well on our way with the first episode we're recording we're not even edited it or published it yet but if you're listening to this i guess we made it so anyway this sounds interesting to you because i forgot to introduce the whole episode anyway this episode (laughs) is called starting a new job in tech, and I need a new job other than podcast host for messing up the uh, intro that I've done a hundred times. But starting a new job in tech, so Mike's going to go over a whole bunch of stuff because he recently uh, did a couple of these things for a new contract that we have. Um, there's a bunch of terms in here that uh, are like office terms that I absolutely despise, and we'll get into that as well. Uh, the very first thing I said to Mike was like, "I can't handle all these friggin' acronyms and stuff." Like I, I've I've experienced it obviously myself firsthand, and it's just I can't like. Like who, you know, when someone's like, oh, blah, 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 you know, whatever this, the acronym is for that specific office sometimes. And you're like, like, who is that a person? Is that a place? Like where, like, anyway, if this sounds interesting to you, you want to support the show, you can go check us out on that Patreon, leave a review rating on your podcast app, join us in our discord server or share this with your friends. And Mike, please, sir, take it away with starting a new job in tech. How did you do it? What, what, what's up? And what's all the little, little pieces that people should know about starting a new job in tech? Absolutely. Um, so yeah, I think a lot of it is what you're talking about. So there's going to be a lot of acronyms. Be prepared for that. There's going to be a lot of tools that you might have never heard of, some that you might have heard of, um, and stuff that if you're anxious about office work, which some people are, uh, it might be a little bit of a trigger because a lot of this is organizational stuff. But the reality is, if you've never had a job in tech, a lot of what I'm going to be talking about right now is going to be very similar to your first real like structured job in like a large fang company or a large uh, tech company in general. There, most companies run in a certain way. Most companies have onboarding in a certain way. Most companies do meetings in a certain way. Um, but obviously with some variation as well. That's another thing I'm going to get into is like everything that I say right now isn't going to be a hundred percent how it, you're going to experience it. It's never that way. I've onboarded into, I think about five different companies at this point, and it's been different every time. But again, the core fundamentals are similar. So I just want to give you experience that I recently had with onboarding into, into a new contract. Um, and also talk about some previous experiences to give you kind of a, a, a wide breath so that you're not shocked and you're not like com- super confused or you're not going into it blind because getting the job is one step, right? It's difficult. It's, it's a whole process completely separate from starting the job and succeeding at it in the first couple of weeks to a couple of months or whatever, whatever it is, whatever success means to you and the company as well. So let's just get right into it. The first thing I want to talk about a little bit is signing the offer. 
Now, obviously, this would happen before you start your first job in tech, but it is part of the process, in my opinion, because usually when you get an offer, it's pretty solid. You know, you're, you're getting that job. So you're, it's start of the process to get into the company. And a lot of times people will just sign the offer the first, they first get, but realistically, you can do a little bit of negotiation here. I don't, I'm not saying, you know, double your salary or whatever, but take a look through the offer, read it and see where you would want a little bit of adjustment. Like stuff like vacation time is tough, but if you need a little bit more money to, you know, to, to make that push, if you need, um, a different start date is another really good example of like maybe having a little bit of power negotiating if it's your first job. If you need a, you know, an extra week off to be able to, you know, get into the rhythm and have, have a little bit of a break before you start a job, ask for that. They don't have to say yes, but they also don't have to say no. They could say yes. They could say no. And it's up to you to ask. Um, and so that, that's kind of the first kind of little tip that I have because I've noticed that. People take what they get at face value every time, and really there is some flexibility there. A company wants you to start, and if they send you an offer, that means they want you. That's that's their their tell of being like, hey, we've done a bunch of interviews. You're the person that we want, so you have a little bit of leverage here, and try to use that leverage to better your, you know, better your position. One thing I will want, I do want to add to this this part is I haven't advised anyone on this in specifically a tech job, but I have advised a friend uh, in regards to just a job. And what the what my advice was was they were working at a job, getting paid a particular salary, and they were getting raises at a consistent rate. I'm not sure if it was consistent amount per hour or consistent percentage, whatever, but it was a consistent rate in whatever it was. And when they went to go ask. Uh, or when they, when they went to go change jobs and get a new job, uh, you know, she had asked me, you know, hey, you know, what do you think I should ask for? Because they actually asked her, what are you expecting in terms of compensation? And to my advice was to ask for what would have been a three year advance, not an advance on money in terms of them paying you three years in advance. I'm talking about what would your salary be? In three years, ask for that now so that you've effectively from your previous job advanced three years. Generally, the raises, depending on the job, of course, but generally the raises are not all that crazy. And so it doesn't seem too greedy to say, hey, I'd actually like this much instead of like, let's say you're making $20 an hour. And in three years, you'd be making 26. If you're switching jobs, you don't want to wait three years to make that 26. You're going to ask for the 26 right off the hop. 20 to 26 isn't too, too crazy. Again, it depends on the job, depends on the employer, depends on your rate. If someone's offering you a salary of 100,000 and you want like 150, maybe that's a little too much. So you have to use your own, you have to use your own sort of, um, your own like read of the situation and your own read of, are they able to pay that? You know, what's the market like? Was I getting overpaid or overpaid in comparison to the market? Was I getting an above average salary before or whatever? But in this case, everything sort of lined up. She was getting paid a regular sort of salary according to what the, let's say the average was in the area. The raises were about on par with what you'd expect type of thing. It wasn't too crazy. And then just advance again, like quote unquote, advancing her by three years and they took the offer. They were like, yeah, we'll, we'll pay that. No problem. And I said, there you go. So now you're, now you're, you've moved ahead three years in one day in terms of your salary. Now you can, now you're effectively on year four, assuming these people also match the raises per year. 
So that's how I handled that. And that's how I would. That's one way. Again, it's it's up to the situation at hand, but that's one way I would handle a negotiation like this is especially if they ask you what you're expecting. That's kind of where I'd be at. Of course, everyone would love to say I'd like to make 30 mil or something if you were previously making 50K or something. Um, but, you know, that's not realistic. So I, I, I just kind of look at it as, you know, where like how far in the future would I like to advance myself in terms of what my average raise would be per year? Yeah, I think that, that that's a good way to look at it. And the other way is like, what do you need to live, right? Like if if they've offered you something that doesn't pay your rent, then you have to negotiate at that point. Like, unfortunately, it is like you have to put in the fact and you, you can say like, hey, I just need this for my cost of living at the, at the moment, right? And they could, again, negotiate back or they could just give it to you knowing that it would be a good thing to do. Um, so... It, the negotiation process is a little bit scary and a little bit awkward, especially when it's your first job. But again, you've gone through the ringer. Usually you've gone through interview after interview after interview and you've gotten to that point, which means that they've chosen you. Trust me on, trust me. They've gone through a lot too and they don't want to do it again. <laughs> like it's a lot of wasted time for them as much as it, not as much as it is for you, but it is a lot for them as well. So, you know, use that to your advantage. Let's move on to onboarding. So once you've signed the offer, once you've uh, established a date to start, you're going to have a start date. And here's where kind of a lot of bureaucracy begins. Every company is different. Larger companies have more. Smaller companies usually have less. But you're usually going to have something like phishing and security tests. So they're going to you know teach you about phishing emails so that you don't give away company information. You're usually going to get access to email, uh, whether it be you know Microsoft Office or uh, Gmail. Usually those are the two big ones. Um, some roll their own, but that's usually kind of a disaster. So <laughs> just know that. Uh, but if it's one of the two, it's pretty straightforward. They just send you kind of uh, an invite to your personal email and you get it onboarded. You can set up your browsers to kind of have multiple emails or you can set up your Outlook or you can set up a separate browser profile and have like essentially two instances of Chrome open, one for your personal and one for your work, which is the way I do it. Actually, I just have all my different contracts will have a completely separate browser profile with completely separate browser bookmarks passwords, all of that, and they're all there. And then if I ever have to offboard, uh, it's it's as easy as just signing out and it's not intertwined with my personal stuff, which is actually really convenient. Um, the other stuff that you're going to get access to is stuff like equipment. So I'm going to be talking a lot about remote work, but this applies obviously to in-person as well. You're going to get your laptop. You're going to get maybe some, you know, company swag, a t-shirt or something like that. Uh, you're going to get your security badges as if it's in person. You're going to get just a bunch of stuff that you need to do your work on a day-to-day basis. Uh, you're going to, you know, have to set all that up, like especially the laptop. You're going to have to log into all the stuff that I just said. Um, and then you're going to get access to more tools, a ton and ton of tools. And sometimes you'll have to request access. Sometimes they'll give you access. Sometimes it'll be a hybrid of both because a lot of times they even like – the leads or the people that are doing the onboarding will forget half the tools that they need to give you access to because it's just so much. And that's okay. It's not a big deal. Like, don't freak out that you don't have access to like some, you know, a GitHub repository or you don't have access to some sort of continuous integration tool for deployments and stuff like that, that you can get that access as you need it. 
Um, but usually you're going to get like a bulk thing of like, hey, you got your access to your email, you got access to Jira, which is the task management, you got access to GitHub, you got access to like other Jira stuff like Confluence or Bitbucket or whatever. Um, and then you'll get access to something like Slack or Discord where your team will actually hang out in terms of talking, right? So that's a really big one. As soon as you get access to your Slack, you're going to get put into the right groups. If you don't get put into the right groups, I very highly recommend to reach out as soon as you can to the person that did your onboarding or the person that was assigned to you or your manager or the person that hired you uh, to get you into the right to the appropriate Slack groups. Because this is where a lot of your internal communication is going to happen in terms of like, hey, when's the standup? When is the next meeting? When is what tasks are everyone assigned? What are the blockers for those tasks? Like a lot of the day-to-day the communication is going to happen in these chat groups. Now, it could be Slack or Discord. I've noticed that almost every normal tech company at this point is on Slack. Um, Some of the newer, smaller startups are moving to Discord or even other platforms. Uh, but most of the, most of them are on Slack. It's a fair, it's fine. Like it, it works. It does its job of separating out groups, separating out how, like, you know, creating chat rooms, creating, uh, everything that you need from a chat software. Like it's, it's got it, which is nice. Um, next, uh, you'll, once you get into those groups, you'll be talking to the team that you're most closest to working with, right? A lot of the times, you'll be put into a team of either like three or four people. Usually those teams are part of larger teams. So your team is small, but the larger team and the stand-up team might be like seven people, 10 people, 12 people, 15 people, whatever. Uh, but it's important to kind of get the basis from the people that you're going to be working with on a day-to-day basis, right? To get the the lowdown, introduce yourself, talk to them, get establish a rapport so that you're not just a silent new employee that's just doing tasks, but you're actually a person here and uh, you're you know willing to ask questions and willing to answer questions and have some sort of personality. Again, I'm not saying become a member of the family. I don't like that. Like if usually a really big red flag is like what, during an interview or during the onboarding process or like we're a family here. As soon as I hear that, I kind of cringe. That's for sure. But a lot of times, and in my personal experience for the last few jobs that I've been in, that's become less popular to say, especially in tech companies. And it's more just like regular camaraderie and regular people working together to, you know, actually finish tasks. That's the most important thing. But that doesn't mean you can't joke around sometimes. That doesn't mean you can't form some sort of friendships. There's nothing stopping you from doing that. I think it's more like those things can happen on the side rather than those being a a quote unquote forced requirement in those family kind of cultures. Uh, And yeah, that's, it's going to happen naturally. Uh, Next, you'll want to set up like kind of a, your own kind of hierarchy where who's your manager, who's your direct reports. Like usually if you're just starting out, you're not going to have any direct reports under you, but you're going to know who's your, you know, team lead, who's the senior developer on the projects, who's the uh, intermediate developers, the people who are just working. Knowing all of that is really important because you're not just going to be asking one person questions a lot of the time. Different people will have ownership of different parts of the entire stack of technology you'll be working with. And, once you get an idea of who has those 
you know, the, the ownership of those parts, you'll be able to go to the right person each time and not have to go through like the typical, you know, ask manager, manager points you to the right person. And then you keep doing that. That can get annoying for the manager a lot of times, especially if it's just like a regular one-off question that the person that was doing deployments can answer, can answer in three seconds while the manager would have to, you know, go to you know, back and forth between multiple people. So it's important to understand who's responsible for what and what the hierarchy is for asking questions. It's th- this part is like a little bit awkward because you don't know whose toes you want to st- you're going to be stepping on or how that hierarchy is enforced. Uh, some companies have a flat structure where like there's almost no management, uh, which is really awkward because <laughs> almost everyone is stepping on each other's toes at that point. If people are cool with it and no one cares about, you know, having power over anyone, it could be really good. But as soon as you get someone that has like a kind of a a mentality of, hey, I need to own the entire project or I need to own this whole feature that can get a little bit awkward. But a lot of times you're going to have a very established hierarchy. And uh, especially when you're starting out as a junior developer, it's really important to kind of follow that hierarchy and help it along. Like don't, you know, you don't have to suck up to your boss or anything like that, but you can, you can be a, a good person in that structure where you can provide insight into information and also, you know, answer questions and be able to do the tasks that are assigned to you in the proper way. On top of the hierarchy, one thing to note as well, and I've had this, this problem with actually IT in the past working in IT is that um, knowing the hierarchy is one thing, but knowing where to, to go is another and where the boundary is. So for example, when you're working for a company that's in a, or like, I guess most big companies would be in departments. So there's like tech department and the tech department is subdivided into say IT and the development. Um, in the development, that'll be further subdivided into, you know, these people do the front end. These people do the back end. Let's just say for simplicity, uh, sometimes those are very obvious. You know, hey, you know, I, I'm working on the database. I know, you know, I know who I need to talk to in general, assuming you know who your managers are and stuff like this. And you've established your hierarchy, like Mike just said, and you know, generally where the boundary between teams are. But in my personal IT journey, I worked so closely and this can happen with tech jobs as well, where it's not as defined in terms of departments and sub departments where I don't know what the, the, my surroundings are like, if that makes sense. I'm not sure where to go I'm like, well, do I go to service desk for this? But I'm in IT desktop. Do I just talk to desktop people? But the service desk guys, they give us the ticket. Like, or do I go to, you know, HR for this? Because it's something to do with, you know, my my break time. But my manager, like, does he do that? And it's just, it's not clear sometimes based upon team are based upon responsibility as well, like with the HR part of that example. And so I've actually said this in in a meeting. I've said, you know, they asked us, you know, is there anything better that we can do for onboarding and set up? And I just said, I think we need to have like on day one or very, very close. I need like I need to be told or new uh, members of the team need to be told, you know, tickets get processed here. They come to here. You are this part of the machine. These are the people you talk to so that this will also help with the hierarchy part. Like Mike said, these are the people you talk to. If you have a problem with this, you go talk to this person. You don't need to talk about your manager. You don't need to talk to your manager. And there will always be edge cases in which they don't cover. But I think the biggest the biggest thing for me was just getting my footing and not really knowing where I was because a position 
like an like a position uh like that you're given can be very specific or could just be something they threw together to get someone to to sign up on a job board to do the interview process. And so I don't know how serious, let's say, or how solidified my position is. If my position says team A, do I never talk to team B? Or is it actually that I'm kind of a liaison between team A and B and everyone's just sort of between team A and B? It's just that they needed somebody in team A a little more and they just threw that in there. So I think that having in the onboarding procedure, having anything that you touch in a normal basis in the company, like HR, maybe, maybe you do need to talk to finance here and there. Maybe you do talk to this person for HR instead of HR. Maybe there's like a liaison between your team, like having a hierarchy of where you are, what cog you are in the machine, at least to me, makes a heck of a lot of sense. And I hope that companies are doing this. I haven't interviewed or done this in a while now, but I hope companies are doing this because like I said, I did bring it up. And it is important because you don't really it takes a little while for you to really know where where you sit, especially if the team is really technical. If the team is very technical, like R&D, because you're on literally the cutting edge potentially of of tech in general, but you're on the cutting edge of the tech for that company, it can be really challenging to know who exactly you talk to. You might be in team A. And team B might seem like a whole other team of people that are doing something completely different than you. But because the tech is so cutting edge, you might be expected to talk to team B's team lead or tech lead a lot because your tech is bumping up against theirs so much. But you again, you don't want to step on toes. You don't want to do that type of thing. But you're also you're on the forefront. You're in R&D. You're researching and developing the new stuff that will eventually get either filtered out and the company won't use it or the company will start to use it. And then it'll get filtered down to developers and hardware engineers and whoever to do their quote unquote regular everyday tasks that have been sort of researched and said, yes, this is the way to do it. Hand this to the hardware team. Yes, this is the way to do it now from our, from R and D. This is the way to do it. Hand this to the programmers. Right? So it, it really does depend on your position in that, but hierarchy and you knowing where you are in the company, at least in my opinion, really gives you a good lay of the land and allows you to really actually talk to people more effectively in instant messaging apps like Slack, where you can look at their position really quick, know how serious the company is about where, like the positions they give, whether or not that position matters. And if it does, then you can say, oh, this person is talking to me from team B. It's probably about this. Or, you know, I should just just touch base with somebody from Team B and I don't need to talk to their tech lead. I'll just talk to somebody that I actually know in the department and you know whether or not you're you're stepping on toes or whether you can just talk to them and be like, hey, you know, is, do you think I could talk to your tech lead about this? Kind of get a little bit of humanity in there, like a little bit of human conversation in there. But in order for all that to feel natural, again, knowing which cog you are in this machine makes a heck of a lot of difference. Yeah. I th- you, you kind of nailed it there is like it, it is really difficult when you're starting out and you don't know where you belong um, and the reality is like yeah companies try their best or try to a certain degree to give some sort of hierarchy indicators uh, when you're onboarding but the reality is is that they're not uh, good enough for sure um, because it's constantly changing 
I think a big thing is, is like, if you ask how open is the communication, like, can I talk cross team? Can I talk to, you know, instead of going directly to my lead, can I talk to the people around me? Like my, you know, my direct uh, coworkers, stuff like get that out of the way really quickly to figure out if there is this like hierarchy structure in terms of communication, because you're right. A lot of the times, if there isn't, then just treat it like a normal human and you're trying to solve issues. So as long as, you know, if you're looking to solve an issue with the ticket that you're on and it's involving, uh, you know, the back end and you have a direct connection to the back end dev that you've already in- been introduced to, just, you know, you can just cut talk to him like a human and be like, hey, I'm having this issue. And he'll either give you a solution, an answer, or at least point you to the right direction of where you can ask that issue. So like, being part of it, being part of a cog, and then also being human is a really important aspect to this. Uh, trying to just fit into the machine and only do as the machine says will overall be most likely detrimental to the entire company. And a lot of companies don't implement a rigid structure of communication unless there's a very sec- – um, there's need for that for security purposes. Like if there's – you know certain secret projects that people are working on or stuff like that, like maybe large companies like Apple and stuff like that do have a very strict hierarchy. But in general, a more general tech company will be very okay with you talking cross team and talking to people that aren't your direct leads and stuff like that. So just just get that out of the way, figure that out. Um, I think another thing that you mentioned, Matt, that's really important is IT. Uh, get, having a good communication path to IT and figuring out the process for submitting a ticket when you're starting a job as a developer is really important because a lot of your, um, a lot of what you're going to be doing in the first couple of weeks is getting through barriers that IT has put there in the, in the past. So like getting the right credentials to log into this service and getting the right permissions to be able to put a file onto that service. Like, a lot of that is going to be your first your first couple of weeks. So having a good path to IT and then also treating IT very well so that they actually take your tasks and do them and you're treating them like a person and not like a machine. I think a lot of people forget that, you know, there's people behind there uh, and you should, you know, say thank you and say, you know, be be a person to them as well rather than just like a, I'm just submitting a ticket. Please do this right away. Don't do that. So Stuff like that. That's a really good point. Like, make sure that you have a good path to IT and and uh, and hierarchy. Uh, okay. So, once you have that established, once you have your first, you know, couple days of security, health and safety, and Slack and all that set up, you're probably gonna be thrown into meetings right away because that's the best and fastest way for you to get spun up on what tasks you're going to be working on, uh, where you're going to fit into the, the, the process in terms of like a, as a technical asset. Uh, it's going to be in meetings and a lot of it's going to be around different design, different uh, project management systems, Scrum or Agile or whatever, Waterfall. Um, I've personally had a lot of experience with Scrum, so that's what I'm going to talk about right now. But again, not all companies use Scrum. Uh, Scrum is coming from the word like a word that comes from a rugby term where they all get in together into like this little huddle it's essentially means huddle uh and there's different aspects of a scrum and also another thing that i want to clarify different companies implement scrum in different ways so some will not implement all the different like um meetings that are required for scrum some will implement 
more meetings than than are required. Some will implement a new feature. Like people will, you know, play around with this concept of Scrum. But in general, what it means is you're going to be making a sprint that is going to be a week or two weeks long, where you're going to be working on a set of features to finish a certain goal, right? So usually sprints have a goal of like, uh, you know, prep for version 1.1 release of feature B or whatever. And that's going to be the goal of the sprint and all the tasks that you're going to be putting in that sprint or most of the tasks, I should say, because there's going to be some, you know, firefighting and spikes that you're going to have to put in there that uh, are not part of that sprint directly, but are tied to it. So all of that is going to be focused around getting that feature set out. And so you're going to have someone, usually a team lead or a scrum master, that's going to be managing a board of tasks, usually in something like Jira or Monday.com or uh, Trello or whatever. Like there's a million different softwares out there. Jira is a very industry standard one that almost every company that I work with uses. Um, and you're going to be, th- there's going to be a lot there. That's where I want to say it right away. A lot of tasks that you have no idea and have no insight into. Don't get overwhelmed with that because that's not the goal here. The goal here is to have the entire team have perspective and you're going to be assigned very direct tasks to you that might be linked to other tasks, but those are the only tasks that you're going to have to really be in charge of and really take ownership of. So that's, that's where this kind of system comes into play. And you're going to go through different stages of these sprints. The first stage being a sprint planning stage. So that's a meeting usually with, uh, usually with the whole team uh, that's going to be part of the sprint. And that's where you're going to go look at the backlog of tasks, which is your kind of quote unquote to-do list. And you're going to pick the right tasks that are going to fit that sprint's objective. So if you're trying to build a calendar feature for your application, you're going to pick the tasks that help you build that feature or that you're, that are needed to build that feature, right? Sometimes, like I said, there's going to be some like, hey, the checkout isn't working right now. That's just like, it's not really a task or it's not really a story, I should say. That's more of a bug. Bugs will also fit into a sprint, but they're not attached to your end of, you know, end of sprint success. They're more like firefighting. So you're, you're just, someone's going to be assigned that. They have to finish it within a, one, a day or two, however long you decide and move on. So in, the sprint planning stage, you're going to pick the tasks as well as that you're going to estimate the tasks. This part is a little bit more complicated and weird. Uh, with estimating tasks in tech, it's really difficult. And especially across a large team, you're usually going to pick, you're usually going to estimate it by playing something called planning poker. It's a weird little thing, but a lot of different chat apps have this integration into Jira where you can pick a task of like whatever task that you create. Let's say it's a task called uh, implement a UI for the count, uh, the, the current day, right? If we're talking about a calendar, implement the UI for a current day. And what will happen is the team lead will put a little game that will interact with every member of that sprint inside of Slack. And your as a member of that sprint, your job is to rank that task uh, from 1 to 21. And the rankings go 1, 2, 3, 5, 8, 13, 21 in terms of how difficult you think it's going to be. And usually most tasks are going to be ranked from 1 to 3, honestly. If it's anything higher than 1 to 3, a lot of times 
you'll want to break the tasks down into something that's one to three. So if someone, you know, says 13 for a task or eight for a task, the question back will be, okay, so how do we break this down to something that's, you know, more doable in a one, two, three ranking of hardness? Because, and why I say that is like, it's not necessarily tied to a direct time estimate, but a, you know, a task that's ranked one is expected to be done in like, let's say half a day. A task that's ranked two is expected to be done in, let's say, a day. A task that's ranked three is like a two or three day kind of ordeal. As soon as you go through higher and higher, it could be, you know, a month and you don't want a task to last an entire month because it doesn't make any sense. Obviously, you're going to be doing many, many different subtasks in that. So it's better to break it down. So it's a good indicator where it allows the team to kind of have the input into how difficult that task is and then have a discussion on where everyone stands. A lot of the times, and I've done this recently, where I'll say, hey, this task to me seems like it's a three and a bunch of the team members will be, no, it's a two. And they'll, the, the question after the poker game is over is, okay, Mike, why did you think that this task was a three? And I'll be like, well, I think you're miss, we're, we're missing the point of like, we have to test this task. We have to also implement the documentation around this task. Like that's what puts it to like, you know, another half a day of work and there'll be a, a conversation on that. So each task that's picked for a sprint will go through this. And each time you might have a conversation back and forth. Once you get into a rhythm with the teams, you'll get a, a better understanding about how they rank tasks. And especially if you're new, usually if they're going to be assigning you a task, you'll want them to rank it a little bit higher because you have that overhead of learning the systems. And that's a normal thing. So don't, don't worry about that. Like, don't be like, don't be scared of asking for a higher rank because you can easily explain it as, Hey, I'm going to need to spin up in X, Y, and Z. Uh, so it's going to take me probably an extra half a day or a day, but next time I do that, one of these tasks, it'll probably be a rank lower. That's kind of the communication you can have during this part of a, of a scrum meeting of a, of a sprint plan. So with that, you move on. Once you get all the tasks ranked and set, uh, and set to the sprint, you move on to a standup. Uh, standups happen daily. Whereas a sprint planning session happens once per sprint, per sprint. So once every two weeks or once every week, you'll have that sprint planning session. But a standup will happen daily. The standups are usually 30 minutes long. That's what they try to keep them as because it's a daily thing. You don't want to waste time of your developers. And the goal of a standup is literally to announce what you've done in the previous day, what you're working on that current day, and any blockers that you have for what you're working on. Right. Those are the three things that you talk about. You don't talk about serious technical issues. You don't go in depth into like, you know, my code didn't do this and I needed to do that. Can we look at my code? You don't, you know, screen share your code. You don't screen, you don't, you know, talk about serious error messages in depth. What you'll do is you'll just mention, Hey, I, I built a simple, um, again, current day UI and HTML and CSS. Uh, I'm current today. I'm going to be working on the response responsivity of it. So I needed to work on the phones and tablets and stuff like that. Uh, and I currently have no blockers because tomorrow I can easily, you know, get that done. That's, that's kind of as quick as you can make it. Sometimes it's a little bit longer. If, for instance, you say like, Hey, I, you know, I made this mobile first and, and, uh, I'm not, I'm not intending to make it in for desktops. And the team lead can then come down and be like, Hey, 
we actually intend this to be a desktop thing and you can have a back and forth there. So sometimes it can get a little bit longer, but most of the time you want to keep it as short as possible. Again, keep in, keeping in mind that you want to keep it to 30 minutes. After, after a, a uh, sprint, so after the two weeks is done, you'll have something called a retrospective. And a retrospective is exactly as it sounds. You're literally looking back at your sprint and seeing what went well, what went poorly, and what could be like what, what you can change next time in a sprint. It's not necessarily looking at individual tasks. It's more looking at the sprint as a whole in terms of planning, in terms of communication, in terms of were, you know, these people communicating properly to accomplish the sprint? Were, what, were the tasks assigned small enough to be completed or did we, do we need to break them up even more and stuff like that? So it's a way for each sprint to become better. That's kind of the main thing, right? And the, that's really it. Those are the, those are the stages of a scrum. There's nothing too crazy about it. Um, it is a lot of structure. It is a lot of meetings. Uh, but again, you're only going to have one sprint planning meeting in every two weeks and one retrospective every two weeks. Usually the standups are daily, but it's not, it's supposed to be very quick. Now, having said that, sometimes the standups can drag on, which is really annoying. Uh, but. For the most part, a lot of times what people will do is like say their updates and then kind of zone out, maybe work on something else, maybe just do whatever. That's that's why people want to limit them, because the, the longer you make it, the more people zone out, and the more useless it becomes. I'm going to say this, too, but all this is I don't I'm not I'm not I'm not one to enjoy like all this terminology, like sprints and all this stuff. And I think you mentioned it too, Mike, that you, like you don't think anyone really enjoys it. I understand that there's a, a need for. Uh, planning, especially in a larger team and having some sort of structure. I understand that. So, you know, it's a necessary evil, I guess you could say. Um, but I would almost say that this is the number one thing, at least in my mind, that is very anxiety inducing for the anxious of the, like people that are anxious or experience anxiety, at least for me, is be, is, is it's not so much the onboarding. You know, there's, there's a little bit of your social anxiety there because you're meeting new people. You're doing a whole bunch of stuff. You don't want to mess some stuff up. But at the end of the day, you're onboarding. They're not going to tell you like, Hey, real quick, can you just like, make the make the website's dark theme work push your production I'm not going to do that in your onboarding um you know in general i hope um but the like this is this sort of meeting and task management as you've labeled it here in the show notes and all that stuff you just said with the sprints and the sprint planning and all this is really where i would say the anxiety comes like other than the social anxiety is because this is really the where you're left to your own devices and it's sort of like, OK, now that everyone sort of met you and everyone's, you know, saying, hey, nice to meet you, this and that, and the other thing. Maybe they take you for lunch the first day, yada, yada. The list goes on. Then all of a sudden, you know, there comes the t there comes almost the quiet time where between these meetings and between these sprints or these uh, sprint planning meetings and between the standups and the daily standups and this and that and the other thing, the retrospectives and all the rest of that, uh, you there's like this quiet time where you're just sort of supposed to operate like a member of the team. And if the onboarding wasn't enough and if you're very inexperienced, this is where you kind of feel like a fool. Um, I've definitely had this where I haven't worked in a, in a team where that used scrum, but I've definitely been in a team where they're just like, all right, like go configure that router. And for the first couple of times, it's like. OK, like it's in production, you know, yada, yada, you know, we're in I.T., so it's a little bit different. You kind of have to work in production um, depending on the, the department, of course. But it's sort of like. You know, now I'm just OK, like now that you've been introduced to everybody and, you know, we've had your lunch and all this, it's like just just kind of go. And you're, and you're sort of like 
how do I go? You know, you guys seem to be, you know, nose to the grindstone, know what you're doing, picking up the work orders, doing all this. And I, you know, I'm sitting here with like my welcome, like welcome to the job, like flag still like hanging on my cubicle. And it's sort of like a really uh, anxious feeling. It's like, it's not good. <laughs> um, so I don't know how you deal with that. Mike is kind of, I guess what my question is, you know, cause I, I guarantee there's people listening to this that are like, Oh my God, like you have to remember all of this, you know, sprints and all the, all this terminology within scrum that you said, and this planning poker thing, which I've never heard of this planning poker thing <laughs> until today. Uh, Jira, of course I've used ticket software other than Jira. Of course I've used sprints. I've heard of, of course, standups and all that type of stuff I've heard of. Cause it's used so much, but in order for you to have something to bring to the table for these meetings or for these sprints and stuff, you have to have that quiet time in which you do your, do your job. And if you're not, it's, it's kind of like, it's not as simple, let's say, or it doesn't feel as simple as something like a car mechanic where it's like, Hey, you know, like, welcome to the team, whatever this car needs an oil change, go do it. You know what you have to kind of do if you, if you've been a mechanic before, but if you're part of a new team, you don't really know where to go. And it's like, well, do I just like tap the shoulder of my teammate and constantly interrupt them? Do I have to talk to the, do I have to talk to somebody? Are they going to get like pissed off that, you know, I'm talking to them, you know, like what is the, what's the situation here? So I, I think it's a really good question and it's different for different levels of uh developer. But what, if you're a junior developer, which is really what this whole episode is made for, a lot of times this stuff is the point of these meetings. So when you get into a your first sprint and your first stand-up, usually you'll be in the middle of a, of a, of a sprint anyway when you come in. It's not going to be like, hey, do, you know, give your updates to the new guy. They don't have anything to update about. So your goal there is to just listen, hear the structure of the meeting. You don't have any pressure there. Like you're supposed to just kind of take it in and understand the flow. Once it gets to you, what you will usually happen is the leader will assign you some, will assign me like some, maybe some small tasks like, Hey, update the readme here or something very clear for you to do so that you can get into the workflow aspect of things. So that when you, this meeting's over and that time comes for you to work, you know exactly what you'll be doing. Not only that, a lot of times he'll actually assign other people to you essentially and be like, Hey, one one of your tasks is to have a meeting with, you know, team lead A and one of your tasks is to have a meeting with the back end dev to discuss, you know, task B. So you'll have like tasks that are very straightforward to accomplish initially. And this is, I mean, I'm talking idealistic. Sometimes you will be thrown into the fire if it's a bad management sy system. But a lot of times there is a, syst a, a system in place for slowly onboarding someone so that they're not like, you know, in panic. Next thing that I want to mention is that, again, as a cog in the machine, as a developer and not a team lead, you're not responsible for understanding the, like, for managing this entire process. So knowing what a retrospective is, stand-up, sprint planning, scrum in general, that's not really on you. You don't have to worry about that because that's the, that is the job of the team lead and the person that's running the meeting. They have to know what all these things are because that's what success means for them. For you, you're focused, like laser focused on completing the tasks that are assigned to you by them, right? And for 90% of the meeting, especially when you're first starting out, 95% of the meeting, it's not relevant to you. 
So there's nothing to be scared about at that point. You're just literally listening and taking in the information that's not exactly relevant to you, but you're just getting the flow of things. So this is how they kind of bring you on without overwhelming you initially. Because like you said, like it is, if you were thrown in and being like, okay, I need to know every part of a, of a scrum and need to plan it and need to uh, run it and stuff like that. Like if that, if that was the intention of these things, yes, it would, you know, that would be a disaster. But the reality is, is that because of this structure, it's actually easier for someone to come in and have something to do in that quiet time between meetings rather than have a situation where you don't know where something is assigned and stuff like that. It's also a great place to ask some simple questions like what is the process for completing a task or, you know, who assigns me my tasks? Like you can ask those questions when it comes to your turn to speak and they can be answered with a whole group of people there, right? You can ask them before the meetings. You can ask them after the meetings, but I'm just saying like it's another opportunity for you to, to get more information. I wouldn't be too, too anxious for your first meetings because not much is expected from you. I think that's the perfect time for you to kind of almost relax a little bit and um, learn more than anything. So that I think that's the answer to your question, Matt. I don't know if it fully helped. Well, one question, it, it did answer the question, but it, it, it triggered another question, which is, so you're supposed to be laser focused on the task. So I guess another question is, because this is a totally new environment for a junior dev, how are these tasks phrased? Are they very much like, almost in code or in lingo obviously there's some tech lingo going to be thrown around but is it going to be like in this like uh project management lingo where it's like we need s24 by 264 for sprint stand-up retrospective you know like is it is it going to be something like that or could you give me an example of a task maybe even as a like a junior maybe a, a medium let's say and uh or seasoned i guess you could say and then a, a senior developer like what would are these tasks like really plain English laid out something like we need the nav bar to have six buttons. It has three, add these three, make sure they work responsibly. Or is it going to be like S 24 nav requires this for sprint two one. Like what is the, what is the task given to you? Like how are they presented? Because that's where your nose to the grindstone sort of comes in. And that, that that's, what's going to drive that quiet time that I mentioned. So the tasks are very English based. Um, a lot of times it's going to start with a story. Uh, so the task will be a story of like, we need the user to be able to uh, log into the website. That'll be the first overarching task, right? That's not going to be assigned to you most likely as a junior dev. But what's going to be assigned in there inside of that story is some subtasks that are like, uh, have the uh, place a login button so a user can uh, get to the login page. That could be a task. It's very English based. They're they're designed to be they're designed to be done in asynchronous manner, right? Like they're designed so that if a person comes onto a team that's experienced, they can read a task, then go into a task and have like a set description in the task that will describe it to the T of what they need to do and where they need to do it. And those descriptions will remain the same. I don't know if I cut you off there, but those descriptions will remain the same, I assume, for various levels of developer. It's just the actual task difficulty, I would assume, is goes up as the as the experience of the of the programmer effectively goes up. Yes, that's that's the kind of thing. Exactly. So as the as as the experience of the programmer goes up, you'll be assigned more difficult tasks, but they're still going to be in English and very clearly labeled and very clear, clearly described. That's the goal of the kind of 
the leader and and the goal of anyone that's creating a task, they should go through a kind of a, a process of learning how to properly describe it. So if we were to just take an example that's literally right in front of my face right now, uh, we're looking at Google Docs. That's where our show notes are located. And I can see that there's a little area in the top right corner that has uh, your icon there, like your uh, Google account image, I guess. And that like that tells me that you're in this thing. And it it's a little circle that's tucked behind another circle. And on that circle, it says show chat. If I were to click that, it shows a little chat. So. As a, as a question or as a, as a ticket, let's say, let's say we're, we're making this functionality. So we already have the button that has the show chat. We don't care about that. We want to have it so that when a Google user logs in a circle with their Google account image, their profile picture, let's say, appears in a little circle that's tucked behind there. So the Jira might read something or the ticket that's assigned to you might read something like, um, we need to track when a when a Google user is using or editing the Google document in question or whatever. So and I'm just doing it off the cuff. Obviously, so, so be that would be the story. I just want to jump in. That would be the story of of that particular. Okay, uh, feature, right? That would be the story. And then the I forget the next part, but it's like the body or the problem that you the need tasks. to solve the mm-hmm. task, right? The task would be like, please make a circular icon that contains an active Google user's profile picture that tucks in behind the existing show chat uh, circle and only have that Google profile pic circle appear when the person is actively in the Google doc. So uh, that would be the description of that story. Okay. But the tasks would be much smaller and much more manageable than what you just described. This would all be like, you have to remember, like, we're, I'm just saying this, like, yeah. obviously I would say, write like, how, like, you know, how many drafts do we do of everything? It's mm-hmm. like, you'd write this out and be like, okay, let's, you know, chop that out, click this up. So it, it like in a written thing, it would take a couple of minutes to like clean it up and then sh- ship it out type of thing to Jira. Um, yeah. Okay. But yeah, so, so it, I, it, it's written like that. It's not like S24, which no. refers to the asset of show chat on part no. one, please refer to work order 267, requires to be done by Sprint 06 2022. Confirm? You know, it's not some Mission no. Impossible shit or anything. There's no, there's no, like, there's no codes like that. There's usually tags for like front end and back end, which literally are front end and back end. And there's usually tags for like severity of the task, but everything else is in English, right? Like everything else has to be readable by someone that's coming into this blind and be able to do it without any information outside of, uh, you know, company infrastructure. So it's, it's not that bad. And a task that you would be assigned on, like, let's say a junior developer would come in on that exact feature would be something like, uh, create a component or create a HTML structure for a, uh, a circle that is overlapped by another circle. Okay. Right. And then the, another task would be tie the components. And this would be dependent on the first task, tie the components to the, um, to the user that is currently viewing the page. So you would break it down into something more manageable and be able to separate it out. Either one person does it or a couple people do it or however. Okay, interesting. Okay, so it's very like plain English. Like you're gonna know what you're doing during those quiet like work times. It's not. It's not very much like, well, run the department. That, that, <laughs> just that's take the off. idea. Yeah, that's the idea and the the main focus of these tasks and of these stories. Uh, the reality is, is like 
it's still going to be a little bit foreign to you because the way that people describe things is different than the way that you describe things. Of course, of course. But the, but the point is like after you're done and after you get assigned the task, you can ask those questions. And then it, even if you don't ask those questions after like in the meeting, you can always reach out to the team lead or to whoever kind of created that task and get clarity. Like a lot of times the people creating tasks aren't even developers. Sometimes it's like the marketing manager that sees an issue or that wants a feature. And you'll need to go to them for clarification because as a developer, you're going to see things a little bit differently and you're going to go to them and make a, a chat with them in Slack and ask your questions. They're going to answer your questions and you're going to have more clarity to go forward and work on it. Okay. I mean, that's, I mean, even though I'm not like in the boat to do this, this is uh it's almost anxiety calming and I hope it like helps, helps whoever's listening because I, I certainly would be worried <laughs> if I was in those shoes and be like, man, there's all this like scrum stuff and all this like project. Let's call it project management structure, mm-hmm. let alone like. What do I do? <laughs> like, yeah. What am I doing when everyone's just working type of thing? So, OK, good to know. Good to yeah. know. But and let's get into exactly like what after all these meetings and after the onboarding, like what do you do? Right. Like, what do you actually do? Well, you have to get access to your code bases. Like you have to actually have somewhere to write all this stuff. And depending on what you're doing for the company, you're going to need access to different code bases. If it's just front end, then you're only going to need access to like their website code base, right? Like they, you just need their website. You don't, you're not a backend dev, so you don't need their backend infrastructure set up or something like that. And in the code base, usually there's going to be a bunch of documentation about how to set up your local environment. So, in the first day or two of being on the job, once you get access to the code base, a lot of times the expectation is for you to just read the documentation and try to set up the local environment using that documentation, right? And the advantage of this is kind of double because it tests the documentation that someone's written. And if there's issues with it, obviously you can go out and ask and get more clarity. But as soon as you see that, the intention is for you to go in and actually update that documentation with any issues that you found during your setup process. A lot of times what can happen is everyone has a Mac, maybe you have a Windows computer and it wasn't, the documentation wasn't designed for that. So there's like a little caveat that you have to figure out, right? Like that could happen. Um, sometimes it's like, oh, I'm using this node version and it's a little bit older. So it, something's not working right. So that's something you can add as like a, as like a troubleshooting method inside the documentation, right? So again, any experience that you go through during the setup process of the environment, the local dev environment, you can add that to the documentation. That's a very helpful thing that you're doing right away, right? Like you're actually helping the project uh, by just running the application. If everything works perfectly, great. Uh, that happens, like it happens sometimes, that doesn't happen, whatever. But again, something that you can do. Uh, the other thing that you'll need to do is get the environment files. So a lot of times a front end will connect to backend services. A lot of times a front end will have some uh, environment variables in terms of like which environment you're connecting to. So you'll have staging environments, development environments, production environments, and stuff like that. And each one of those will have a different URL, maybe a different API key. So you'll need the correct environment files for the environment you're working on or you're going to be working with. These are usually shared not through the GitHub repo because you don't like the, it's it's against rules to commit environment files to GitHub. What you usually need to do is 
contact your team lead or contact the person that's working on the project with you and ask them for environment files. But it's not just like, hey, I'll send them over Slack. That's not a good idea, although it happens. And eh. What you want to do is set up a secure file transfer method. Um, whether that be the person places the file on a secure location on the internal servers and you have access to that server, that's a good way to do it. The other way is to use whatever third-party software they have internally for sending secure files. It could be a password manager, like one password or whatever. Like they have, usually companies have methods for sending secure files over. And I say this because a lot of times these secure files might have, like these environment files might have payment processing stuff in them, like your payment processing ID for Stripe or something. Like you don't want those kinds of things to be just willy-nilly sent back and forth. So make it the onus on you to also demand it being sent in, in a secure fashion because you don't want to be in a situation where you ask for this, the, your, the, the, your coworker sent it to you insecurely, right? And there's a, an issue where something gets leaked. And now like, yeah, it's on, it's more on the coworker that sent it to you, but it's still kind of like, it would have been nice to not have that situation happen at all and you not having to be in part, part of that situation. So if you ask for the insecure files, it's, it, you know, it'll look better on you. Uh, again, once you have the environment set up locally, you might want to also reach out to the DevOps team. The DevOps team is usually responsible for continuous integration, continuous deployment in terms of like, Hey, I want to, I edited the website here or I edited the code here. How do I get it so that it goes to the staging environment? How do I get it so that it goes to the development environment? How do I get it so that it goes to production? Now production, you don't have to worry about right away because you don't want to actually push to production, uh, right? Like in your first day or first couple days of work, but it's a really important at this stage to figure out what the process is to push to dev staging and production so that you don't accidentally push it to production. Like for, in some companies, and this is good or bad, some people, some companies allow you to push to master. And if you push to master, it automatically kicks off a build for production and all of a sudden production's live. Like that's, that's something that could legitimately happen at a job, at a job place. And all of a sudden, if, if somebody didn't tell you that and you accidentally pushed a per, to master, or maybe that's how the workflow that you've already always done, you can push to production and who knows what could happen then. Like that's, you know, the horror stories of all first developers, all, all uh, junior developers is like, I, I accidentally pushed to production my first week and took down the website. Um, you don't, you want to avoid that as much as possible, figure out what, how to do it. But obviously, when you're doing it, make sure that you're following the proper structures and you're getting the right code reviews and stuff like that. I'm honestly surprised it's that easy. You'd think because obviously as, as freelancers, like we will push to master all the time because it's I mean, it's us and we don't have a continuous integration. We just upload like files differently, like upload the different files that changed or because usually it's like a small change that we did in like one config file. So you just like FTP it over or something. Sometimes you'll CI it, whatever, of course, depending on contract or whatever. But uh, I'm just surprised that there's no, like, I'm surprised there's not like a production team or a production person. I don't know that no matter what you do in the development area, uh, you can literally like just p- push it anywhere. And like, all you're going to do is break something that isn't public. And then you get a build, you know, like, let's say it's 1.1 or something, version 1.1. And then version 1.1 is like packaged up real nice, given to the production person. And then that production person puts it live. I'm honestly surprised that it's potentially so easy. It's almost like, it's almost like continuous integration is like dangerous. So in some uh, cases, 
it is 100% dangerous. And I want to, I want to clarify that it usually in a, in a, in a properly structured com- company, you can definitely set limits to a who can push to master or if pushing to master is even a thing. So a lot of times, even on smaller projects that I've worked on, I've disabled push to master. The only way to get a change into master is through a pull request, which has to be then set certain rules of like, hey, three people have to review it, et cetera, et cetera. So there is no way to actually kick that off. I'm just saying in the off chance that, hey, you're working on a new project, you're working on a project that was set up poorly or quickly, and you know it it is something that I've heard of happening. And something that you should be aware of, like, because it can happen. It is a setting that has to be set. It's a very easy setting to set. But, like, not disabling push to master is something that someone has to actually tap. So that's why sometimes people don't tap it and disaster can happen. I guess companies that grow very fast, too. Like I just said, we push to master all the time on, like, our own little repos because we don't have continuous integration. But if, like, let's say our company decided to blow up and we had to get a big team and this and that, it's, like, it's a matter of speed and getting things up and running. So you would you would make a CI and, you know, a CD in different staging environments and stuff like this. But it'd be very easy to still have that root thought of pushing to master. And if we missed that configuration, because realistically it is sort of like a little luxury uh, I guess that we could ill afford in the in the face of speeding up the growth of the company, you could very easily just forget about it over time. Yep. Yeah. Exactly. I, that that and that again that has happened. It can happen. It's something you should be aware of. <laughs> and will the, happen more than yeah, likely. <laughs> exactly. Just don't push to master. That's all. When you're in a company, don't push to master. Um, okay. So. That's really it. I mean, there's probably a million things that I've missed down the line, but uh, that should give you a good overview of like the onboarding process and the first couple days and weeks of you uh, getting the tasks, working on the tasks, getting the code base up and running. What I kind of want to move on to really quickly is uh, just some tips that I have, right? Some observations that I've made and some research that I've done uh, into how to optimize your first couple weeks, couple months. First thing, ask questions. Ask as many questions as you can until people tell you to stop asking questions because that'll happen. But ask questions because the clearer the picture you have, the easier it'll be for you to do the right job the first time. The chances of you doing everything perfectly the first time are low and don't worry about that. Like you shouldn't strive for perfection. But in reality, if you can ask the right questions early, That'll show initiative. That'll show a lot of, a lot of clarity on the developer side that you're working with that, Hey, this person can kind of manage this stuff. The less questions you ask, the more worried other people will get, especially the, before your first task is completed. Because that means that you've probably, you're probably either stuck and you're worried about sounding dumb or you're going, you know, head, head deep into this with a, with a method that you thought of. But it might not align with the company's code structure, right? It might not align with the, how the company does the, does those tasks. So if you look, if, if early on you're asking questions and people are guiding you, you can learn that kind of stuff quickly rather than complete a full task, submit it to code review and realize that all of what you did needs to be redone because you didn't ask any questions while going through it. Um, I, I've heard a really good little anecdotal uh, rule that someone has. Uh, actually, Theo on our show, Theo, one of the guests of our show a little while back, he forces 
his new hires for the first couple months to ask like three questions a day or something. And they can be dumb questions. They can be right. But he, he makes them, he makes it so that asking questions is required so that it removes that negative connotation of asking questions. And he's found that a lot of times that really helps the, uh, onboarding of developers to not feel so awkward with interacting with people and, you know, asking dumb questions because sometimes they're like, they don't have those three questions and they'll ask a stupid question and it'll just be funny. And that's good too, right? Like you're, you're developing that rapport. Uh, document answers. So asking questions is great. Asking repetitive questions is bad. So if you ask a question three times, the same question, you get the same answer three times, that's going to look bad on you. So when you ask questions, make sure that you at somewhere, maybe in the knowledge base, maybe in your own notes, document the answers, especially to something that you're, you know you're going to have to ask over and over again. On that same note, write and edit documentation. So a big help factor for a new person, to like uh, for someone that's coming into a code base, is the technical debt that it comes with all the documentation that needs to be written. And you can be a very impactful person by just kind of being very meticulous with adding documentation, editing documentation, asking where you need, you can actually help in terms of processes, right? That's a really big thing that companies just don't have time for. And early on, if you see everyone running around with their head cut off, that's a perfect place for you to kind of fit without having to be a huge burden on everyone else. If you, if you're in that situation, sometimes the situation is perfect and they give you the right tasks and you can go, go ahead and do them. But writing good documentation will put you in the good books of a lot of developers. Prompt responses and communication. This one's big. If you can prove that you can, you know, reply to people act like, uh, consistently, uh, ask the right questions consistently, um, you know, respond to emails, respond to Slack messages, uh, be interactive. That's going to put you ahead. That's going to put you as someone that's in the company rather than just a cog in the machine, right? Um, and again, it's going to give you more insight into how people do the – like how how the company structure works. Because the more you talk, the more people talk back to you and the more you'll have an insight into like, hey, this – you know, we can talk to people outside of teams or we can talk to our managers like normal people and stuff like that. Like you'll have that – you'll accelerate that part of your learning by just – making sure that you're promptly responding, like you're being on time to to the responses. I'm not saying respond immediately. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying like sit at your computer and just wait for a Slack message to come in and respond. No, but I'm saying like when, like if you're working, work, but every once in a while, check in, make sure you give those responses. Don't let responses hang for days or even a day. Make sure that you set a couple times during the day to respond to Slack messages, right? You want to make sure that you're, being earnest and being communicatable. Be okay with receiving critical feedback. In fact, ask for it. When you're first starting out, no matter how good of a coder you are, the way that you code is going to be different than the way that the company codes. Now you can go in and look at examples of code. You can read the code top to bottom, but you're still going to write stuff that isn't going to align with how the company writes it. So, be not, not be okay with it. Know that you will receive feedback in your first code review that you're going to need to change A, B, and C. You have to, uh, you have to adjust to it. You have to be not only okay, but you have to take that as a comp, like, not as a compliment, but you have to take that and run with it. 
because every time you do it, every time you kind of conform, it's going to get a little bit easier and a little bit easier. But the reality is, is that you're going to have to structure your code the way that the company structures their code and the way that the code reviewer wants it rather than the way that you write it. Even if you're right and you can have, you can have a little bit of a back and forth. That's fine. You can explain your reasoning, but also be like, I'm perfectly fine with changing it to the way that you need it. Uh, and just be very clear with them that you're more than willing to take that feedback. Contribute to the code base as quickly as possible. A big indicator with success is like how much you can push to the code base, whether that's bad or good. I'm not getting into that, but if you can, you know, in your first three weeks of work, contribute something that can fix a small bug or adds a small little UI element, that's going to be very helpful for the team. And that's going to know that, hey, he's not afraid to, you know, take on tasks and do them and and finish them, right? Because a lot of times, sometimes the people do need to be handheld a little bit into how to contribute to a code base. But if you can prove that you can in an effective way after you've learned how, uh, that's going to put you a little bit ahead. And the final thing here is own your tasks. So this one is a little bit abstract and a little bit weird. And I have, it's a hard, it's a hard thing to like describe, but um, we talked about being a cog in the machine and yeah, that's, it's important to know where you fit, but it's also important to know that you, you affect the entire process. So when you're given a task to create a chat bubble or you're given a task to, you know, add, add like a, an active user into your document or something like that, figure out how that fits into the entire workflow into that sprint and make sure that you get as much clarification to the entire, to the big picture as you can when you're making that task. What that'll allow you to do is, first of all, you'll have a better understanding of what you need to do, but you'll also have a better understanding of what people around you are doing so that you're not conflicting with what they're doing. And you'll, you'll have a, you, it'll seem like you have more insight into the entire project and you might be chosen to, you know, be promoted earlier on. You might be chosen to lead a, lead a team earlier on, stuff like that. Like you might have a better, having a better understanding of, of understanding of the project as a whole within your tasks will provide well i'm telling you it'll set you apart rather than the the opposite where you just kind of narrowly focus on just your task and don't look at the project as a whole and you're just kind of it again i have a hard time explaining this but it is one of those things it's not exactly fully tangible it's one of those things where you need to show a little bit of initiative in understanding that your task fits into the project rather than you're working on it, just a task and that's it. It's almost a human element of it. It's almost like the surrounding and it, it is hard. It is like a hard thing to sort of, uh, like, I don't know, portray, I suppose, um, especially when it's probably a collection of things. You know, it could be something as simple as you messaging people that you're directly affecting and stuff like that. It's like, we can't exactly show that in a podcast where it's like, Hey, this one time, you know, <laughs> I told somebody that I had to mess with the button they put up or, you know, with something like that, but it's little things like that. And that's only one small example that can show that you're, I mean, not to make it like in the machinery or anything, but like not to make you into a robot, but it's like to show that you're one cog in the machine, but you're working you know, in amongst other cogs that are trying to get stuff done. Exactly. And and a good way to show that, like, just like you said, with the messaging, right? Just messaging people and, and asking clarification on stuff is showing that you're owning the task. 
because a lot of times what developers that that only want to work on the task will do is they'll get stuck, they'll wait till the next standup, and they'll talk about getting stuck, right? And then and then they'll wait for the manager to be like, well, okay, do this X, Y, and Z, or the the team lead to X, Y, and Z to get unstuck. And then they'll do that X, Y, and Z, get unstuck and move on and then get stuck again. You know what I mean? Like they'll just be very conformist to the process of the standup. Rather with an own your task kind of mentality, what you would do is you get stuck on something, you reach out to the team lead right away, or you reach out to, let's say the owner of the, of the task, someone that reported it and be like, Hey, I don't know if I should put this here or here. I know you reported this, this issue, like this issue. What do you think? And again, reaching outside of that little bubble and going and communicating your issues, communicating your blockers right away shows that you want to complete this task, like you want to move this task forward and you're, you're working on the project. That's At least that's how I see it. Yeah, but, it's, it's, mm-hmm. very much, it's very much like it, you're kind of like trying to not inconvenience people. You're just trying to be considerate. I guess is another way to kind of put this is you're just trying to be considerate of your teammates and being considerate of the project. And it's almost like taking pride in your work in a way where you want to get this done. Like, Hey, I'd like to get this done. And it's sort of like you kind of pushing forward instead of you just, you know, listening to the scrum or the project management uh, system that you guys are using. Um, It's very much like, you know, you don't need to be like super into it and be like, hell yeah, this button. But at the same time, you know, you want to get that button. If, if that's your ticket, you want to get that button where it's supposed to be and working the way it's supposed to be. Yeah, exactly. And that, I think, honestly, if you can do those things, the what I just mentioned, uh, you'll be way ahead of everyone else that's starting at the company and you're going to have success. Obviously, a lot of it has to do with how you code and stuff like that. But assuming you got to this position you probably know some a thing or two about code because of all the coding interviews you went through. Just take it one day at a time. Make sure that you're you're involved in the process and you're going to be fine. I guarantee you. Starting a new job in tech is a different process than getting a job, but it's still just a process and it gets easier and easier as you go. All right. Well, I think that just about wraps it up. We've covered a heck of a lot or Mike has covered a heck of a lot. We talked about the technical ins and outs, the personal ins and outs and avoiding anxiety, this and that and the other thing, what you should expect, uh, especially from a team that uses the Scrum system, the Scrum project management system, if I can call it that. Um, and so I hope this helps people that are getting into um, into other into new tech jobs, is what I'm trying to say. Uh, and also, if if the company you're going to is not using scrum i mean there's going to be differences maybe they won't have the the poker of you know task difficulty or something but in general the task that you're doing you know job to job if you're in the same position is going to be relatively the same so you can more than likely take some of your say your scrum knowledge or your knowledge scrum knowledge just from here if it's not firsthand and apply that to a new job uh, hopefully that helps out but um i think it is time to conclude unless you had anything else to add mike uh no, I think that's it. I think we we covered this topic as best we could. Awesome. Well, uh, if you enjoy episodes like this, remember that we are on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash HTML, all the things. And many thanks to our $3 tier patrons. Sean, uh, Ryan Gatchel from Blue Black Digital via blueblackdigital.com. Chris from Self-Made Web Designer on selfmadewebdesigner.com. Tim from The Web Hacker on thewebhacker.com. DL Ford from dlford.io. Vip Hash Dash from 9blockmedia and 9blockmedia.com. 
Jason from Geek Life Radio via geekliferadio.com. Michael Curie from MC Web Studio via mcwebstudio.ca. Magnus from YesWeb via yesweb.se. And Jeff from Twitter via at the Jeff McHale. Feel free to leave a comment or a review on the platform that you are listening to this on. And this outro will sign us off. You've been listening to HTML All The Things Podcast. Web development, web design, and small business. We hope you've gotten some useful and practical information from this show. And we hope you appreciate that we talk to you like human beings. And we hope you had some fun. We'll be back soon. But in the meantime, hit us up on social media. On Facebook, Instagram, and Patreon at HTML All The Things. And on Twitter at HTML Everything. Until next time, this is HTML All The Things. Signing off.